Zero through, uh, uh, let's see, uh, four. And uh, we tried to emphasize uh, why, in, in the introduction, we tried to emphasize why we need to be trained in evangelism. This I'm really doing this not so much for people who are just coming to the Lord. As you know, we have a whole leadership team of people who've been through a whole discipling process and a whole study process and our systematic theology class and all the th ways that we try to equip and train you to know how to make disciples. And so uh, really, uh, I'm, I'm particularly saying, uh, you, obviously you can't t uh, do Bible studies in this much detail with someone you're just bringing to Christ. But you can hit, make sure you hit some of the most important ideas. The most important ideas in elements one through four are, you know, we, we talk, they talk nowadays about a man-centered view of God, and God is bigger than our view of God. And we have to restore uh, a much bigger God to our heart and minds if, uh, if we're going to understand the gospel. We need to understand, uh, the, if we're going to understand that man is made in God's image, we need a bigger view of God. If we're going to understand the depth of man's fall, in the depth of sin, we need a bigger uh, view of sin, etc. all the way through. So uh, once you start to see that gap, then you begin to realize all of man's religions and all of man's philosophies and all of modern psychology boil down to man's attempt to bridge the gap for himself. And it's a, it's a fool's errand. It's futile. It's impossible. Uh, the disciples saw some of the demands of the kingdom. They said, Lord, who can be saved? And Jesus said, actually, with man, it's impossible. Aren't you glad he didn't stop there? <laughs> uh, with man, it's impossible. See you later. <laughs> you know, and uh, uh, so, uh, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So, um, and it's not just a matter of some abstract intellectual agreeing to a reconciliation that bridges the gap. It's about an experiential, uh, a heartfelt, changed life that desires to love God and is on fire and passionate for him that doesn't need anyone to tell you why you need to know your Bible because you just can't get enough Bible and so forth. And, you you know, you, the, all the tools of grace you get on fire for. So, that's what we're, we're kind of doing. Now, the last five weeks, we've been doing this Christology thing. Uh, four and five weeks ago, we looked at the Lagos in the, in the Gospel of John and the I Am Sayings of John. Three weeks ago, we looked at why our understanding of who Jesus is is so important. Who do people say that I am? Uh, and then uh, one and two weeks ago, we looked at the, the concept of didactic teaching because this church, didactic teaching is by far the most common and most accepted kind of teaching in Western Christianity today. And so uh, most people are, are familiar with that to the point that some people are familiar with only didactic teaching. So we've done a lot in this church, uh, starting with John's uh, introduction to uh, Finding Christ in the Old Testament series. We've done probably over 100 teachings in the last four or five years on how to read the of the Bible in terms of word pictures and prophecy and themes and major themes and literary devices and poetry and, and all of that kind of stuff. 
so that you get the full message of Scripture. Uh, but uh, with didactic teaching, I want to just review the definition. In scriptural usage, didactic teaching is straightforward or plain language teachings or doctrines that contain theological, moral, and exhortive instruction to which aesthetic and literary considerations are subordinated. So all of the stuff we've been talking about with biblical imagery and all this kind of stuff and the case laws of the Bible and... Uh, you know, how to look at, at the prophets as foreshadowers of Christ, not all about the end times and escapism and all that kind of stuff, but how to see their real message and all the stuff we've done well, along that lines in three or four years um, is not didactic teaching. But didactic teaching is what most people are founded in, if they're founded at all, in plain, clear uh, instruction about major ideas, doctrines, etc. So... Today, we're going to look at the next step in Christology. We've looked at the deity of Christ, and we've looked at the humanity of Christ. And today, we're going to look at the virgin birth and the sinless life. Now, to be honest, we could have, maybe should have, it's hard, it's kind of a coin flip, maybe should have looked at the virgin birth before we looked at the deity or the humanity of Christ, because the virgin birth of Jesus makes both of those possible. And without the virgin birth, you can't really believe in the deity of Christ, nor can you believe in the humanity of Christ. And so uh, the trend that they say in certain denominations that over 90% of the pastors don't believe in the virgin birth anymore and so forth, you just should go to another church. <laughs> like, ask your pastor if he believes in the virgin birth. If he doesn't, then you're really probably not actually in a Christian church. You're more of an in sort of a... I don't know, maybe uh, like a tomb that still has the skeleton of, of some things, but it's long since had the Lord depart from it, frankly. And so uh, the virgin birth is not a, a minor thing, nor is the sinless life of Christ. We've, if we've got, do not have those, we've got nothing. And so that's uh, hopefully what I can communicate in the remaining time today. Um, so let's get into this. I'm going to hopefully explain what the virgin birth is about a little bit and talk about its critical importance. I'm going to kind of do it as I read you a couple parts of the creeds dealing with Christology, of the two most known creeds, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, and just a few scriptures, mostly the gospel accounts of the birth of Christ in Matthew and Luke. Uh, if you grew up in my family, which only, I guess, one or so people in this room, too, uh, did, you uh, you read these every Advent and had to uh, listen to lots of talks about these scriptures. So uh, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, by the way, depending on, there are different traditions in the church that some start with the word we as an affirmation of our communal faith and others start with the word I as an affirmation of it's got to be uh, your faith. And both are very important. We believe in Jesus Christ, or I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived or begotten by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, etc. That's a line from the Apostles' Creed. Uh, Nicene Creed has, by the way, a lot of people who aren't familiar with the tradition of creeds, uh, just to review, we've covered a lot of this in, in, the, in the church in the last few years. 
in, uh, I always forget if it's 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen or 2 Corinthians eleven nineteen. Someone could, Anvesh can always look it up for me. I think it's 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, 19, um, where he says, uh, but heresies arose among you. Uh, it was, or it was actually necessary for heresies to arise among you, arise among you, so that that which is true may become obvious or evident. God actually ordained a process, beginning around oh late 50s A.D. and continuing through about uh, three and a half centuries whereby various cults emerged that were pseudo-Christian and challenged the main ideas of the faith. And the creeds and what was called, and the canon of Scripture came out of the church's response to that to fight against those cults. And that's why you see in history that there were very few, from, from around the 4th century until the beginning of the 19th century, there were very few pseudo-Christian cults that challenged the church, although there were a few and um, Albigensians and so forth. But um, there were very few because the creeds and the canonization of the New Testament had stamped them out. Once the church, uh, with the rise of the pietistic movement that led into the evangelical movement and the rise of not reciting creeds at, at the Lord's Day, the, the, the pseudo-Christian cults began to emerge, like Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and so forth. Because if you grow up in a creedal tradition, you will not come to Christ from that. However, when God starts knocking on your door, no one can come unless the Father draws him. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. When God starts taking you through uh, poorness of spirit so you can find the kingdom of God, and, and he starts uh, revealing himself to you, if you've grown up without any uh, good Christology and good Trinitarian theology and all these kinds of ideas, whoever gets to you first will usually win, whether they're the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Christian scientists. That's one reason those groups, some of those groups are actually much more aggressive about evangelism and disciple-making than most Christians. Kyle's had more calls from the Mormons at his room than from our guys in our church, right? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they, they, will, they have come to seek and to save those who are lost in order to cause them to get lost further. So, uh, I mean, that's just, the, that's just what the reality of things. So um, the creeds were actually, uh, you can't really say I believe in the 27 books of the New Testament and, and to say I don't think creeds are important because they came together and it was actually the Nicene Creed that finally decided on which 27 books of the New Testament were going to be authoritative and wrote the Nicene Creed as one act together to fight uh, various heresies. Part of what led to that is from the beginning, uh, all the New Testament books, contrary to what you'll learn in many even conservative Bible schools, all the New Testament books were written by about 68 AD. And uh, they started circulating in all the churches in the Roman Empire. Not every church had every book that we now consider the New Testament, but most churches had most of them. And occasionally there was a book or two that this or that church didn't accept, but for the most part, almost all the churches accepted the 27 books, even though no one had ever made an official pronouncement or list. It's part of the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture that the Holy Spirit had borne witness to, the, to these writings. And so they were used in the church from uh, 60 AD on 
Uh, Peter actually in 64 AD calls Paul's writing scripture in his epistle. And uh, they circulated among the churches and there was not much need. But what happened was as various heresies and pseudo-Christian cults arose, especially uh, a heretic named Marcion, Marcion decided to uh, make a list of his own canon. And he rejected the Old Testament completely. He rejected the Gospels, and he just accepted parts of Paul's writings and so forth. And uh, it's actually, the pre- there's a new modern heresy called Pauline Dispensationalism, where they only accept Paul's writings. There's such a group in Xenia, Ohio. And uh, so um, the church responded by saying, no, these 27 books are uh, the authoritative ones that the church has always accepted and are evident by the Holy Spirit to be the canon or the rule or the order or the measuring rod of, of the Word of God. And the church always accepted the Old Testament canon as as it had been finally put together in the 39 books um, and so forth. So uh, anyway, this, they were, the creeds and the canon were part and parcel of each other. And you can't, you can't really, with any knowledge of history, accept one without accepting the other. The creeds say, I, uh, the Nicene Creed says, I, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, now, all that's what we did last week. Begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made for us men and for our salvation. He came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. Okay. Now, Isaiah foreshadows this by saying, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Those of you who have, uh, hopefully you do, use uh, some of the better what's called literal equivalence approaches to translating, such as the English Standard Version, the New American Standard, and the New King James Version. Those three, New King James calls itself complete equivalence, but I haven't been able to see that much uh, difference in the philosophy, but it's definitely not the dynamic equivalence of the more popular uh, NIV and so forth, and therefore it's more accurate in a lot of ways. And so... um, if you've read the introduction and you follow the notes, you'll see things like literally or some manuscripts, or uh, I like the New King James because it actually tells you which manuscripts and so forth. If you're familiar with the Nestle Almond text or the United Bible Society's text or any of that. But anyway, if you are reading those, you may notice that some translations will say um, that, that it could be translated that she was born of a maiden or born of a young woman, okay? And so modern people see that and go, oh, my gosh, it's not necessarily the case that it, she was a virgin. She was just young, lot, you know. Um, however, that just misunderstands Hebrew culture altogether because it, it's a word that was used for a woman too young to be betrothed. And it was only used for women like that. Just like some cultures today still have like women who wear a flower on one side if they're married and a flower on the other side if they're not married and, and have other kind of ways of differentiating who's, uh, you know, legitimately uh, courtable and who's not. So um, really, uh, born of a virgin is, 
coming into English, a much more uh, accurate translation. So let's jump into the back side of your page and get into Matthew. Matthew 1, 18 through 27 says, now the birth of Jesus Christ. Now that's Christos would be uh, the Septuagint version and Mashiach would be the uh, would be the Hebrew Masoretic text that he's that he's referring to in these verses, but he's he wrote it in Greek, so the Greek would have said Christos here was as follows: When his mother Mary had be, had been betrothed, uh, which some translations will say engaged, betrothed is a, probably a better word, although we don't know what I give thee my troth means anymore in in the marriage ceremony. But in in Hebrew culture. A betrothal was much more serious commitment than an engagement, and it was um, considered almost the same as committing adultery or divorce to break off a betrothal. It was not a small thing. It had been covenantly sealed. They were like husband and wife in every way except uh, the sexual bed. And... um, it was a, a sacred commitment that involved families and covenants before God and, and all kinds of things. It wasn't some easy thing to break off. That's kind of important to know if you're going to understand what Joseph's dilemma was here and so forth. Um, so, uh, and Joseph, her husband being, let's say, before they came together, she was found to be a child by the Holy Spirit. Now, that's something we probably need to comment on because... I actually was a little astounded some years ago when I was having some Bible studies with people who actually had bachelor's degrees in Bible and stuff, so forth, who didn't know what that meant. And uh, so it's important that you know what that meant. When she was found, when when Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, there's kind of a modern silly idea called uh, where. Uh, and it actually derives, unfortunately, that it's in the Roman Catholic Church as well. But this idea that the like it was Mary's egg and Joseph's, uh, you know, or God's, you know, sperm, and that so that accounts for the deity side of Christ and the humanity of Christ. No, Jesus was planted in Mary's womb as a zygote. As a, for a zygote is after. Uh, it, it basically it comes from the word to to merge or whatever to breed. But uh, after a sperm and an egg come together, the moment there the, that conception occurs, that person is fully human in every biblical sense. That's why Christians have always been against abortion, even in the Roman Empire, which abortion was a huge issue that the Christians even died in their opposition against. So the reason it was is so big is because the only difference between the creation of Adam and the creation of Christ, uh, they were both created with all the DNA that human beings require. They were both created with a spirit inside them. They were both created with the right number of chromosomes and genetic information and so forth. Adam happened to be created 30 years old in the maturity process, just like many of the stars were billions of years old on the second they were created, and the wine that Jesus created was well-aged the second it was created. God is Lord of time and space continuum. He created it for his own benefits, and he lives outside and above it. So when God decided in creating Jesus to, to have the Holy Spirit place a human being inside uh, Eve, and neither, uh, there's no... Um, 
this idea, you'll actually hear people who have this idea of the uh, Mary's egg and so forth. Uh, that has led to a, a Catholic doctrine that, that, that claims Mary didn't have a sin nature because that's their explanation of how, to, how did Jesus not have a sin nature, which we're going to get into. And, um, but the problem is, is that if Mary was born without a sin nature, how was she born without a sin nature? So it doesn't really answer the question. But uh, it doesn't really do it. And uh, furthermore, you'll hear people who have this idea talk about Jesus's half-brothers. Well, Jesus had four brothers, clearly, in the, in the Gospels, and they are not his half-brothers. They're his brothers. Because in Hebrew culture, when you were adopted or belonged to a father and mother, you had all the same rights, privileges, covenant responsibilities, and so forth of a naturally born son in that family. Jesus was the child of Joseph and Mary. Even though they didn't contribute the biological material. And his brothers were fully his brothers. That's very important to see. That's very important to see because adoption is one of the most needed things. Do you know if every family in America that claimed they were Bible-believing Christians adopted one orphan, it would account for all the orphans of the world? Think about that. So... uh, and through our, uh, so Mary was found to be a child by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was was fully a man, the same way Adam was fully a man, created by the Holy Spirit, the same way Adam was created by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus uh, and the Holy Spirit and the Father participated in the creation of Jesus as a human. Uh, he never was created as the eternal Son of God. So, and uh, Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he, and which is a big deal. I wish I could get into. If you've never seen the movie, um, is it um, what's that Christmas movie they made? The Nativity. Yeah, that's a very good movie. And they bring out this issue about betrothal in the movie pretty well. But when uh, when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, "Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who is." conceived or begotten could be translated in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, which means God himself will save for he will save his people from his sins is what most English translations, but the Greek actually, uh, we, it, we, it doesn't sound right to us in English. So the, that's why they don't do it this way, but it, the, literally it's he, he himself for emphasis, he himself will save his people from his sin. Just like Abraham had said to Isaac, when Isaac said, where is the sacrifice, dad? Uh, Abraham prophesied of the coming of Christ, and he said, God himself will be the lamb, or provide the lamb. God, but, but the Hebrew means God himself will be the lamb. Uh, so, uh, and that comes through in a few Hebrew Bibles, but I, I have not found yet an English Bible that brings that through as well as the uh, Hebrew Bibles do. So, um, but there's some English versions of Hebrew Bibles that bring that through pretty well. Um, 
she will bear a son, and we did all that, and you'll call his name Jesus, because Jesus means the Lord himself will save. Now, all this was, took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. I kind of like those verses. Notice, a lot of times it'll say the prophet Isaiah or whatever. I, I kind of like in Hebrews where it goes, somewhere it is written. So it's okay if you can't think of it. Remember the reference. You can always call on Veshin. He'll look it up for you. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm always, I don't have a smartphone, so I'm always asking on Vesh. Where's that verse that says such and such? All right. Um, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Of course, that's a quote from uh, Isaiah 714 that we already read. And which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary's wife, but kept her a virgin, literally was not knowing her uh, until she gave birth to a son. And, we, and he was called by the name Jesus. Luke 126 through 37. Uh, now the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee called Nazareth. By the way, why does it say stuff like sent to, you know, in the sixth month? Of course, that's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy for John the Baptist. Why does it say this and where the city was and so forth? And, you know, in the time of Caesar Augustus, a decree went forth. The Bible is very clear to make you understand that God who loves outside and above the time-space continuum and can only be worshipped and fellowshipped and related to in this present eternal now that intersects the time-space continuum. In other words, you are who you are with God today. Don't live in the past. Don't live in the future. Walk with God faithful one day at a time. That's the message of Matthew 6, 19 through 34. And... Um, where I kind of lost my train of thought here. So um, the reason it, it has all these historical facts is it's important for you to understand that ours is the only faith that is actually rooted in the events of history, which are verifiable from one of the four major types of ways of doing epistemology. Epistemology is the study of how do you know something. It's verifiable by... Uh, what's called legal historical proof. The resurrection of Jesus, the virgin birth, these things would stand up in a court of law. And if, the, if a lawyer who was advocating for the virgin birth lost the case, he'd be a pretty bad lawyer, frankly. You wouldn't want to hire him. You'd want to encourage him to get some education. So... Um, the angel Gabriel to a specific city in the northern region of, uh, of Israel called Galilee uh, to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph, or betrothed, some translations say, the descendants of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Uh, it always brings out, it's very important that you see that both Mary and Joseph were consenting to what God was calling them to do. God never does anything that he doesn't, by his grace, work in the hearts and minds of his people to make them willing to be free will offerings in the day of his power. Psalm 110. So the, the scriptures make it very clear that God so worked that Mary said yes and Joseph said yes. And you, every day, God is asking you to say yes. That's a very important message in these passages. So uh, coming to her, the angel said, greetings, favored one. Now, if you look at the Greek there, 
It's the exact same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 1.6 when he says that in Christ you were accepted in the beloved. In Christ you are the much favored of God. I meet Christians all the time who are filled with rejection and poor me and oh me and oh my and, and you know, have lots of self-pity and lots of hurt and lots of things. And I'm not unsympathetic and I work with you using three major schools of counseling. We sometimes minister deliverance and cast out demons if that's necessary. We'll walk with you through a process and so forth. But the basis for that process is understanding you're a new creature in Christ Jesus, and you are one of the most favored people who's ever been on this planet. Because God himself called you to know his son. You are, when when the angel greeted Mary and said, Hail, much favored one. It's the same thing God says to you when you became a Christian. Wow, that's a destiny bender. So, as they say, um, back week, last week was Back to the Future uh, anniversary. So, if, if you're on that destiny bender wavelength. Um, So uh, the angel says says to her, do not be afraid. Uh, People need to understand that if you ever see a real angel, he'll need to say to you, don't be afraid. Uh, For you found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And of course, Isaiah also prophesies of his that it, there will be no end to the increase of his government or his peace. The kingdom of God uh, came in the conception of Christ and began to grow from there, and is still growing. And so, um, behold, even your relative Elizabeth has conceived a son in her old age. Uh, did I? That's it. I skipped a part. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child will become Son of God. Now, that phrase, Holy Child, is important. We just think of it as something religious that we somehow know has something to do with Christmas or something. But it it means this. The child in Eve's womb was the first human being created since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden that was created without sin. He had no sin nature. But just as Adam was temptable and Eve was temptable, he would be human and therefore temptable, but none of us can actually uh, conceive, an interesting twist on words, it, we cannot fathom in our minds what it would be like to be temptable but be without sin because we were born utterly in sin. And we've just known sin all of our life. Until we come to know Christ, it's the most uh, dominating reality of who we are. It permeates every attitude, every motivation, every decision. All of who we are is twisted by this power called iniquity or sin. And uh, we can't even imagine what it would be like to be born as, as the holy child of God without any sin nature. But we shall know that. 
when we see him, we shall be like him, First John 3 says. And anyone who actually has that hope, if, if you actually believe that deep down and you have that hope, it says you will purify yourself as he is pure. You will seek with a passion the purity and hunger and thirst for righteousness with a consuming passion all your life. Every day. If you really have it. And so if you don't see yourself seeking and pursuing Bible study or or whatever God's called you to do enough, say, God, help me with the parts I don't really believe inside. I love that uh, Matthew 17 when the Father responds to Jesus and says, I do believe, but help my unbelief. That's a good thing to pray every day. <laughs> Lord, I, I think I'm a Christian. I, I am a Christian. I do believe, but help me. You know, that's one of the greatest enemies of our faith is most Christians I meet today are kind of smug. Like, I, I grew up in church. I know a lot, and I, you know, and I know it all and, and everything. And, like, you can't grow until you get desperately hungry, until you think, I'm just at the beginning. I, I, I need to find God. Um, that doesn't mean you don't know him already. It just means you don't really know like you ought to know, as Paul says. So anyway, the holy child of God, very important. She'll be called the son of God, which is from Daniel 7, 13. And, uh, or, I'm sorry, that's the son of man. Uh, behold, even your relative Elizabeth also conceived a son and, and so forth. Uh, nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, the bond slave, doulos is the Greek, a table waiter of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from here. Now, I'm uh, running out of time, so I'm just going to hit on two things here real quick about the virgin birth. Um, the, vir the virgin birth is necessary to understand how Jesus was God from all eternity, and the moment he became a zygote, the moment he became a human being, uh, the moment he became 100% human, he already was deity from all eternity. And there was never a time after that that he was not 100% God and 100% man. And in Bible math, 100% and 100% equal 100%. <laughs> the Bible has lots of math like that. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are, th are all co-equally God, co-substantial and, and so forth, and one, one being called God. <laughs> and uh, when, a, when the two get married, they're still uh, John Gray and Leah Greenberg, maybe, but who's no longer Leah Gray, but they're still John and Leah. And that one and that one equal one called the marriage or whatever you want to call it, the grays <laughs> and, uh, uh, or John and Leah that run together, something like that. They're, they are one. One plus one equals one. Try to make sure th you, those of you who are math students explain that to your teachers. <laughs> one plus one is one. Didn't you ever read the Bible? <laughs> you, you know, you can always, like Jesus is always saying to the Pharisees, have you never read? <laughs> have you never read that one plus one is one? <laughs> okay, so uh, Jesus, the virgin birth makes possible the doctrine that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And with the reason those are the first things said about Christ in the creeds is without that, you don't have Christ or Christianity or, or anything. You have deception. You have death. You have loss. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life, 1 John 5, 14. 
It's as simple as that. If you don't have that Son of God in your mind and heart, then you don't know the Son of God. And if you don't have that Son of God in your mind and heart and in your experience, as well as there's always two words for knowledge. There's eight words for knowledge in the New Testament. Really, well, it's kind of 16 words or so, but that was part chapter two of our Search the Scriptures series at Wright State a couple years back. But they really kind of boiled down uh, to two categories of words for knowledge, uh, kind of scriptural intellectual knowledge, uh, cerebral knowledge, cognitive knowledge, or spiritual, tangible, concrete, real, experiential knowledge. And if you don't have both, you got nothing. So uh, you can have great experiences with God, and if you don't have the right Christology and all that stuff, uh, you're having spiritual experiences, are, but we need to explore uh, what kind of spirits are involved. Is that's what First John four says. Uh, we may need to have you do some repenting and renouncing, and and we may need to cast a few of those things out. <laughs> but uh, uh, if you have uh, the right cognitive knowledge and the right intellectual knowledge and the right doctrine, but you don't have tangible, concrete spiritual experiences that changes your motivations, your attitudes, your zeal, your passion, what you're seeking, you also got nothing. Because when someone is born again, they're born again. Their spirit is made alive. They are become a new creature, and you will have a passion for God. And one of the things that we're, that we're always up against in our day and age is people who've had some kind of experience with God and so forth, but don't show any of the marks of what the, the ancient church or the Puritans or even the Arminian Phineas movements of the 19th century or any of those kind of people would uh, call true and false conversion. Almost no one talks about true and false conversion in modern times because that doesn't make the church bigger. <laughs> it doesn't sell well. No one's going to buy any books on that, although there are a few books on that out there. The Puritans addressed it all the time. The ancient church addressed it all the time. Guys like St. John Chrysostom, Augustine, Polycarp, and so forth. The New Testament addresses Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. And do you not know that Christ is experientially in you unless indeed you fail the test? And we think of that test as being primarily conceptual and doctrinal, but that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about, is there vital signs of life? Just like in the natural, there are vital signs of life. If you're born again spiritually, you should be hungry for the word of God all the time. N wanting to nurse every couple hours, maybe you're having to do well in school might not allow you to, but no one should be telling you, you got to study the Bible, etc. You should want to witness. You don't really believe it if you're not compelled to, to see lost people come to understand and so forth. We know we've passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. You'd want, you want to be in Christian community. All right. Uh, I'm almost out of time. We got to do better at starting on time, but let's follow the Cedarville model. They're all here on time. <laughs> and, uh, I'll bet their classes actually start on time. Imagine that. <laughs> uh, do the classes start on time? What what a what a strange modern model. No, um, I wonder if in Wright State do the classes start on time? 
They, they certainly don't at Sinclair. But uh, <laughs> or at least the people aren't there. Um, all right, so we, I think what we'll have to do is defer the sinless nature and the sinless life to next week because uh, I really don't want to um, uh, do those too shallow. And I, I unfortunately, I'm trying to cover, as we go through these major attributes of Christ, I'd like to get to where I could cover a couple per week so that we this doesn't become like an eternal series. But, um, I think this was the 25th week. So next week on the 26th week, we'll actually go to element 5G. EFG, got to know my alphabet, ABC. Uh, and we will look at the, um, uh, something that we touched on already. Uh, what, one of the things that I hope you'll see next week is it's not just that Jesus lived a sinless life. That's not enough. It's that he also had a sinless nature. And both, without both of those, those two truths add up to one truth. That one plus one is another Bible one, that you have to have that one or you don't have anything. Amen.